From the hills of central New York in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Rossi. I think that one of the things for you to remember is that the answer to resistance doesn't come from a chug. My guest on this episode, Professor Jim Brosnan from Worcester, Mass, via Penn State, Hawaii, and for the last almost 15 years at the University of Tennessee as a preeminent weed scientist practicing in the turf grass area. Jim's been a frequent guest on this podcast, partly because I'm a weed scientist by training and I love talking weeds. But also, Jim is on the leading edge of understanding major herbicide resistance issues in turf grass systems. When you're considering an herbicide application, are you thinking about the most effective application method? Well, if you haven't seen the advances in technology, now is the time to check out our newest sponsor of Frankly Speaking, Frost Inc. Spray Technology Products. I've known Ken Ross, the president and founder of Frost, for many years now, and he's been a guest on this show talking spray application technology. Frost provides the latest technology and best-in-class customer service to help their customers optimize their spray application programs. Visit them at frostserve.com. That's frost, S-E-R-V.com. Well, it's my pleasure to welcome back to Frankly Speaking, not Jimmy G. Jimmy B. from Worcester is on the phone with us here. <laughs> Jim is the weed scientist and professor at the University of Tennessee. Long-time weed scientist now. 15 years? How long, Jim? Yeah, getting to be that close. I think I started in 2008, so year 14 going into 15 now. Yeah, okay, good. So listen, what I've noticed uh, recently and why I wanted to catch up, you know, we used to do resistance radio, you, me, and that other degenerate New England sports fan, Ben McGraw. When we used to talk regularly, it was about various resistance things, whether it was insects or herbicides, and I want to catch up on that later in the program. But let's start with, you know, the sign of a really good program and graduate student mentor is you get really good students. So how have you managed to do so well, Jim, in getting really good graduate students? Well, I don't know that there's any magic recipe. And, you know, over the years, I mean, I think students talk to each other and and they're looking for opportunities for professional advancement. And I got really lucky with my first ever grad student, Matt Elmore, who's now Dr. Matt Elmore at at Rutgers. Mm -hmm. And everything kind of just snowballed from there. You know, he did an awesome job and took advantage of every opportunity for professional advancement that was put his way. And then networked with his fellow graduate student colleagues, and that continues to today. Devin Carroll, now Dr. Devin Carroll, she'll get her PhD officially here in the end of May. I was just finishing up her time uh, within my program and, and has done a fantastic job. She's actually going to be the commencement speaker for the university at graduation, so she might be the first ever turfgrass scientist to speak at a commencement address for a major university, which is no small feat. No small feat at all, and fantastic is not a big enough word for the productivity she's been able to accomplish in her time with you. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's really cool to see a young person get a spark of interest and then take that spark and grow it into a full-fledged fire, right? You know, that's what has happened with almost every graduate student I've ever had is they get this little nugget that they're academically intrigued by. And then they fully explore that through a series of research projects to try to end up on the other side with something that helps a 
golf course superintendent or sports field manager or, or lawn care professional. And, and that's how our discipline keeps going is we try to find these young, motivated people that want to peel back the layers and, and get to the core of a, an issue of importance. To me, uh, it seems like you've gotten to do a few deep dives here. I see your name on some very interesting papers, uh, molecular biology of resistance, working with Devin on a number of different ecological papers. You know, I know deep down you're a nozzle head, but how are you pulling off all this other work as well? Well, I mean, I think some of it is, and you know this too, because you've been doing this a long time also, Frank, like you kind of refine your approach as you go. And, you know, I've learned over time that one of the best things we can do as scientists is collaborate with others that have different skill sets, right, to learn more about what you're focused on. And I've tried to do that with folks in all these other disciplines that have become maybe more common than they were 10 or 15 years ago. You know, we certainly can do more on the molecular side in 2022 than we could when I finished my PhD in 2008. And I've tried to take full advantage of that to just learn more and generate more meaningful results to help superintendents. Because, you know, at the end of the day, that's why we do this, right? We're trying to fully understand this in order to help those that are managing turf to the best of our ability and position them to do what they want to do, whether it's golf, sports, or, you know, another area of turf. Well, you definitely got smarter since the last time I chatted with you. That's for sure. <laughs> All right. So listen, let me start out with a real let me, let me start out with a real softball. For those, you know, that haven't listened to us chat before, I'm you know, I'm trained as a weed scientist. So you you know, guys like you are always gonna be near and dear to my heart. But before we get into the really the nitty-gritty of some of your research around resistance and annual bluegrass and things, why don't herbicides work sometimes? Right. I mean, you've been studying resistance as a component as an answer to that question. But I'd like to start at a broader uh, answer. Why why don't herbicides work sometimes? So there's, you know, and I'm not going to tell you that I can, I, I know every single possible reason exhaustively. But what I do know is that there's just a heap of different factors that affect herbicide degradation and their ability to get into a plant and do what we want them to do. And and I'll give you an example. So I have a graduate student now. He's a master's student. His name is Ben Pritchard, and he is working on a diagnostic assay to screen POA annua for resistance or susceptibility to endazaflame, the active ingredient in spectacle. Mm Mm-hmm. He's doing this in tissue culture where we take a tissue culture medium and then spike it with a discriminatory dose of herbicide, and then we can put POA annua seed into that tissue culture medium, and we put known resistant or known susceptible lines versus the unknowns, rep that out enough times, and we can get a read on whether the unknown is resistant or susceptible based on the dose that uh, we're working with. And he's dealing with doses of picomolar concentrations, and I know that that's a, a geeky science number, but that's 10 to the negative 12th in terms of concentration. He ran the math out because we knew that we would have superintendents ask us, well, how does this compare to if I was to use nine fluid ounces of spectacle in the field? And it's like 24 million times less than what a field application would be. And to me, that just kind of illustrates how little herbicide it actually takes to elicit the response that we want in a susceptible plant, and then all of the other factors, whether that's absorption through the cuticle Mm -hmm. into the plant or into the root tissue through the plant, binding with soil organic matter, 
whether we have lost it due to solar degradation, volatilization to the atmosphere, movement off-site, whether our equipment isn't calibrated correctly to deliver what we think we're delivering. I remember our friend Rock Saw several years ago at Nebraska did this really cool thing with going through superintendent's facilities and, and looking at variance and sprayer calibration and where machines were calibrated to deliver what we thought we wanted to put down. And There's just so many factors that can affect performance beyond resistance. So... It's very interesting that you don't need a lot to cause the response, which then makes you wonder everything we go through to get that active ingredient, including its formulation. Never mind sort of putting it in a tank and putting it out into the environment and having it deal with all the things that it has to deal with to get to the site of action, but it has to be formulated and delivered. So what have I seen quoted? Are you thinking that about... 25% of things like annual bluegrass and goosegrass populations uh, may be resistant to many of our modern materials? Well, I mean, I don't know that I can put an exact percentage on it because there's definitely one of the things in the National Poet Road Resistance Project that's ongoing that we've seen is there's certainly regional variability in where resistance is most concentrated. So, you know, here in the Southeast, superintendents, really anyone in turf grass is dealing with resistance issues in POA. As you move into your part of the world, you know, that's far less. And a large part of that is we have fewer tools to select for resistant biotypes. We just Mm -hmm. don't have as many herbicide options in cool season systems that can select for resistant and susceptible individuals within a population. So it's hard to put one blanket percentage across it because of that variability. I mean, we have some state-specific data in Tennessee from 2017 that uh, were published in Crop Forage and Turf Grass Management looking at golf courses specifically. And you take an active like glyphosate, which is commonly applied in in winter dormancy and of randomly collected populations, we had greater than a 60% likelihood of one of those plants being resistant. Hmm. So we have high levels here in the Southeast that's only continuing, I think, One of the things we're seeing more of now, you could call it multiple resistance, you could call it stacked resistance, populations where you might have resistance to two or three or four mode of action groups from a diversity of different mechanisms. And when, you know, not to go too deep down the rabbit hole, but when you have a non-target site mechanism, the cascade of that is you lose a lot of mode of action groups really quickly. Well, it seems to me the next logical step is to just have you catch me up on where we think we are with one particular issue which consumes you, and that's annual bluegrass, right, and the tools that you talked about there. So let me just ask it a simple way. You know, it's been a couple of years since we've chatted about this. Where are we now that we weren't maybe just two years ago? So, I mean, I think we have a better understanding of the life cycle of this plant based on Devin Carroll's PhD work. You know, we colloquially call it annual bluegrass. I've tried to make an effort to call it POA annua because the conclusions of her work really show going back through the scientific literature to its original classification botanically as a species is that the epithet annua inferring that it's of an annual life cycle is probably not correct, right? When we think of annual plants, those are plants that will produce seed and then senesce, and we don't see that with poa annua. We have poa annua that is polycarpic, which means we can have multiple flushes of seed head 
without the plant senescing and dying. And, you know, the pathologists in the world laugh, particularly one, my good friend and colleague, Brandon Horvath, that, you know, the conclusion of her work is that anthracnose kills Poa annua, and, and that's been known in the pathology world for the long, a very long time. We just haven't really thought about that as kind of a cause of death when we view Poa annua as a weed rather than as a desirable. So, I mean, I think that that's probably a big advancement over the past few years. You know, one of the questions that, that comes up in extension talks and superintendent meetings is, how do you help somebody with POA annua today? And what is that going to look like five or ten years from now? And, mm-hmm. you know, the short-term piece of that is trying to come up with herbicide mixtures that still have activity on plants that may have two or three stacked resistance mechanisms. And the sad reality, though, is we know where that ends, right? And that mm-hmm. ends with we exhaust our herbicide options. And our friends in, in row crops would certainly speak to that. Yeah. I mean, I, I personally think what we're moving to is I work with superintendents that have four to six mode of action groups of which they're resistant to, that I kind of think we're moving to a place where POA annua control in the south in maybe five or ten years, it might look a lot like POA annua control in the north. Mm-hmm. where our tools for selective removal are now really compromised and it becomes more of an exercise in how do we manage this plant, whether that's masking, managing it uh, in a canopy with, with warm season turf grass, and making it so it's not objectionable in a golf context to the golfer. Listen, I'm gonna, we're going to take a break in a second, but before we go to break, I want to ask you about Clarifying that life cycle discussion you touched on, you know, that wonderful paper that Devin worked on and really got into the literature. And, you know, you see a prostrate plant that's yellowy green with a lot of flowers. We say that's an annual type. We look at a dense annual bluegrass plant with high shoot density, like an Oakmont, almost infertile. I think I saw Huff say sometimes reverting back to a sterile hybrid that it might have been. And I don't want to necessarily go down that wormhole except to ask this getting clarification on that life cycle how much of knowing that is going to be useful in for informing the way we might approach controlling it in the future for us in the southeast i think it has a a huge emphasis in that it puts us in a position where pre-emergence chemistry that controls seedling plants those you know plants that are germinating from seed that's probably going to be compromised. And and superintendents in the Southeast have already seen this. When you think about trying to control POA in green surrounds that are often oversprayed with fungicide programs that are applied to a green surface in the summer, and some of that overspray gets out into the collar and apron and approach area, Mm -hmm. we're seeing POA control in those systems become much, much more difficult because the plants are surviving the duration of the summer. I also think, as we've seen clubs, particularly higher-end facilities, move to more fungicide applications to prevent some of those shoulder diseases and warm-season turf, that has complicated POA management in those fairway situations as well, because the fungicides are going to help the POA just as much as they're going to help the Bermuda grass or zoysia grass fairways. Perfect. All right. I'm with Professor Jim Brosnan at the University of Tennessee. This is Frankly Speaking. I'm Frank Rossi. We'll be right back. The large amount of moisture that fell on northern areas the last several months has made the disease and winter injury worse. Well-drained sand profiles are critical, and dry-jack sand injection services aid in drainage. 
Trijack sand injection services increases infiltration and allows for coarse sand particle injection that will lead to better drainage by top dressing, aerating, and amending in one pass. Contact your local Trijack services representative or visit trijack.com. All right, listen, I'm back with Jim Brosnan here, and we're on the annual bluegrass discussion, and I know he's played around with goosegrass, but Jim, you know, you brought up an interesting point. I actually do want to get into this a little bit. Are you suggesting that sometimes when you apply an herbicide, as that compound gets into the plant and is either detoxified or metabolized into the toxic compound, it has effects on other aspects of physiology that are sublethal or not contributing to decline. But did I hear you suggest they actually contribute to the development of resistance? Yeah, so I guess a, a simple way to... Please, please make it simple because I'm off the rails here, brother. So the way I teach this in class is you, know, you can think about resistance. There's two types, right? So there's target site resistance and there's non-target site resistance. So target site resistance is when we have selected for plants that essentially the herbicide can't bind at the enzyme it works on in the plant correctly. And in the way you can kind of metaphorically look at that is a lock and key metaphor, right? Where the plant or the enzyme within the plant is the lock and the herbicide is the key. And now we have the key, but the lock is different, right? So the key can't function as intended. Non-target site resistance is kind of a catch-all term for a number of different mechanisms that prevent the herbicide from reaching the actual target enzyme. That could be absorption, translocation, metabolism, sequestration, etc. If we keep that lock and key metaphor right, this is essentially like if you broke your arm. So now it doesn't really matter what the key is or what the lock is. We can't move the key to the lock to function correctly, right? And that's going to affect a number of different groups. We published a paper, I think in, I can't remember if it was 2020 or 2021. Our lab identified a unique polo population on a golf course outside of Memphis and worked with some scientists that specialize in genetics and molecular biology and what they actually showed to me was fascinating that if you take this plant that has target site resistance for the sulfonylureas, let's say, so that's revolver and monument, et cetera. So now we have a, a lock that isn't functioning with that sulfonylurea key. If you keep spraying that sulfonylurea herbicide for which you've evolved target site resistance to, you know, and we've experienced this with locks and keys, right? The binding isn't zero, right? There is still some binding. It's just compromised. Much like if we have a key in the wrong lock, oftentimes you can fit the key into the lock. You just can't have the lock function correctly. And what they showed was that when you had a target site plant treated with a herbicide for which target site resistance had already been confirmed, you saw a differential expression of all of these gene families associated with non-target site resistance, those mechanisms that will prevent herbicide from reaching where you want it to go inside the plant, and that affected a number of different mechanisms. Going two steps down the road, my experience in extension is we don't get the call about resistance after the first failure, right? It's typically three to four to maybe sometimes more than that times of we've applied this herbicide, it hasn't worked. And I think that's one of the reasons we're seeing resistance accelerate 
maybe faster over the past five years than it had in the preceding five years. Do you think there's anything unique about the plasticity of annual bluegrass that makes it prone to this type of resistance development? Yeah, I mean, I, I do, and I'm no expert in plasticity by any stretch, but I mean, I think when we look at seed production, right, is going to give us progeny, a large pool for which to select resistance individuals. We have the ability to produce seed at a wide range of heights of cut. I mean, like, I have no data to, to support what I'm about to say, but you think about crabgrass, right, as another annual weed that produces a lot of seed. Well, we don't really see crabgrass seed out and deposit seed at, at lower heights of cut, right? You've got to get that into a point where maybe mowing is uh, removed in order for that seed flush to happen. And I think that's one of the reasons we don't have as many resistance issues in crabgrass as we do in poa or goosegrass, which can produce viable seed at heights of cut that are pretty common to intensively manage turfgrass. Hmm. I think that's it's certainly part of it. I think the the adaptation to survive in a number of different environments. I mean, I think anybody who works with Poe would tell you. I don't know if the anecdote's the best word, but the fact that it's been documented on every continent, including Antarctica, mm-hmm. speaks to its plasticity and ability to survive a, a, an array of different environments. It's a fascinating plan. It is, and so thinking about the complexity with which chemicals we apply interact with you know the physiology of the plant. Directly, indirectly, right? What do you make of some new chemistry like methiazolin, chameleon that's making a resurgence? Are we hopeful that these chemicals might be different? Let's start there, that they are different uh, in the way they're going to work. And then I'll ask you, is there any reason to believe that their chronic use won't lead us down the same path. And then, of course, the third part to that question, if we get to it, is what adaptations would you make in the use of these new products now to make them more effective for a longer period of time? If, in fact, Jim, they're going to be prone to what we're dealing with now anyway. So, you know, thinking about the new actives, and you mentioned Poacure, you mentioned Chameleon, you know, they're certainly helpful. There are tools that will help, you know, particularly with Poacure. They help in a, in a bentgrass scenario where we have limited herbicide options. But I will say that for in the southeast, I think this gets back to the temporary fix versus the long-term fix, that, yes, the introduction of Poacure or Chameleon as a new mode of action group Certainly, that could help us if we had target site resistance to something like simazine or one of the sulfonylureas. But I could tell you we have we work with poa populations right now that poa cure does not control, I and mean, those are populations with confirmed non-target site resistance profiles. Mm. And it becomes very difficult for me, Frank, as someone who works in extension that wants to help superintendents to say, okay, well, you might be one and you're managing a POA population that is resistant to group three herbicides like perdiamine and we've confirmed indazoflam resistance, simazine resistance, and ALS inhibitor resistance. So now you've got four different herbicide groups for which you're resistant to. You're going to go invest you know, these new AIs aren't going to be cheap, right? So you're going to invest a sizable portion of your budget into making an application 
I don't feel comfortable guaranteeing that this is going to give you 90% control. I don't know that I could guarantee it would give you 60% control. So then the, the, the cost benefit becomes a little tricky in terms of helping the end user where is it a better use of the resources to take a designer new AI that's a high price point product and maybe move the needle in the right direction a little bit, but not all the way, or put that into a management program to accept the fact that this is a C3 grass, just like the rest of our C3 grasses, and manage it within a canopy of C4 grass in a way that it's not objectionable to the golfer. I don't have an answer for that question, but it's something that I struggle with now helping superintendents that are trying to manage this issue. Because, you know, I was told a long time ago when I started to work in resistance by Dr. Steve Powells, who might be the most. Yeah, University of Adelaide. Yeah, I almost went and worked with them when I was in, when I was finishing graduate school. I almost went out and worked with them. So I had an opportunity to visit him in Australia right after we had our first resistance case in Tennessee. And, And I give extension talks about it. And every time I would talk, somebody would come up to me afterwards and say, hey, doc, I think I might have the same thing. Can you come visit me? So you could kind of see this building. And I had an opportunity to visit him. And I'll never forget this. He said, I think one of the things for you to remember is that the answer to resistance doesn't come from a joke. And I've never forgotten that because it's, it's right that a new herbicide group will move the needle the right direction temporarily but continued use of those is only going to select for more resistance to that uh, mechanism over time. And then it's not like we're coming into pure populations with no resistance profile that's already been built up. So the more I have thought about this, Frank, and worked with superintendents that are trying to make budget decisions that are harder today than they've ever been, I'm not sure. I, I don't know where the best use of the resources falls with this as part of the equation. It's so interesting. I do the same thing with the Australians. I, I think they're a population of turfgrass managers. Some of them active listeners to the podcast. I had John Nealon on uh, last year. John is a real leader uh, as a scientist down there under. And I got to tell you, you know, they've had long decades of drought. And they figured out how to capture stormwater and move it to the Royal Melbourne and irrigate the golf course with it. They've had profound. I mean, is there any more continent with more resistant weeds than that particular continent? They've developed that weed destroyer. Remember that thing? That guy won the paper award for it last year. The chaff comes out of the back of the combine. And what is it? It's two steel drums. And now they're putting a blue light on it after the seed comes through. So they've really led exactly what you said away from chemicals. Now, it doesn't stop them from using the chemicals. I will say they spray an awful lot of weeds, much like you do in your neck of the woods. Australia is a lot like that. I think they spray more weeds than anything else. I think it's pretty bold to suggest we might have to grow perennial poa in a Bermuda grass stand, man, that is that is some scary language there, brother. We're going to have to learn how to suppress seed heads. Well, and, and, and here's the thing, Frank. Hopefully we never get there. That's not a 2022 thing. No. Right. But I can tell you that sitting in enough weed science meetings, <laughs> watching presentations about Palmer amaranth and row crops, <laughs> which is where a weed species where we have, you know, I've heard Poa annua described as the Palmer amaranth of turf. Yeah. 
the answer isn't a new herbicide, no. right? You know, they're working on, like you noted, physical weed control tactics, yeah. rotational cropping, yeah. cover cropping, yeah. things that we can't do in a turf grass system. I mean, yeah. you know, our labs worked a lot with phrase mowing, and it's it's useful, but it's by no means perfect. And there's a lot of kind of nuances that need to be worked through. And I don't know that it's actionable on a golf course level scale based on the volume of debris that's removed and then all the questions about how to manage that debris and what to do with it. I just think of it as in 10 years, if we track this line forward and project where it might go, you're in a place where your selective herbicide options are really, really limited. And then what do you do? And I don't think enough of us, myself included, have spent enough time working or thinking about that, that question, right? You know, we want to fix the problem and we want to fix it right now and help the end user right now. And, and the easiest way to do that is with a, a herbicide yeah. cocktail that gets you through the current season in a way that you want to be. But the longer tail view of this is we're tracking down a scary road. And how does a superintendent in 2032 in the Southeast manage POA with what's gone on over the, from 2012 to 2022? Yeah. And boy, I, that would be a great end to the show, but I'm not done asking questions because I'm, <laughs> <laughs> that was actually a perfect ending. But I will say, Jim, I couldn't agree more. And you know, and we've lamented this. Sometimes you have to do that work because it's all you could get the money to do. I don't think a lot of people really understand the way university research has worked heretofore, where now you guys are pulling down these million-dollar job USDA grants, you and Watkins and the teams doing the annual bluegrass, there's a low input one, you know, maybe there's going to be an urban one at some point, I would argue that would be really important. So, you know, as much as I like to give you a hard time about this, and as a weed scientist, I do think we're staring down uh, a lack of options. And I also, you know, have the pleasure of of being a colleague of Professor Lynn Sosnowski, who's electrocuting weeds now, right? She's got, uh, (laughs) you know, she's got electric things out and we're like, well, what is the impact on soil microbes and other sorts of things? But let's leave resistance of annual bluegrass and the future here for a minute and talk about something that's Sort of right now, and you've talked to me about, and your former graduate student, Matt Elmore's talked to me about, and I know you've published a paper on on this aspect of goosegrass resistance, right? Matt sort mm-hmm. of said to me, you know, Frank, the Northeast is like a dithiopia or pendimethalin region, and the Southeast is an oxidiazon region. And it looks like goosegrass has been escaping up here, and now you are not getting control. It might be resistant. To something, And of course, I think crabgrass has developed some DNA, uh, dinitroaniline resistance in the southeast as well. Can you talk a little bit about the development of resistance in a population like goosegrass that, yeah, we don't have a lot of options up here in the northeast. And we're going to be on a short stick there pretty soon. And a lot of the crab products don't work. Can you speculate a little bit as we wrap up about goosegrass and what we're facing in the next three to five years with that particular problem? Yeah, I mean, I you know I talked with Guy Cipriani at Golf Course Industry earlier this spring, and you know, I mean, I, I give extension talks. Is goosegrass the new poa, oh, right? Because it, it, it's tracking similarly in terms of what's happening with resistance to the fewer modes of action that we have for control. And you know, Matt's right. You know, this is a oxidizon driven region, and I know Scott McElroy's lab has worked with some oxidizon-resistant populations, and 
we have plenty of barricade resistance in this region. And as we you know, go up to the northeast, Matt, Desire Peers use more up there, and they're working on Desire Peer resistance as well. I mean, that's part of it. I think, you know, as our climate has continued to um, evolve, we don't really have a good feel as weed scientists of when this weed actually emerges in a turf grass system. We don't have that 55 Fahrenheit soil temperature trigger that aligns with forsythia bloom uh, like we do with crabgrass. And I think that target has changed, which also complicates going about controlling this plant. And then, you know, there was some work out of Clemson a few years ago that I thought was really great stuff about showing, you know, you can have viable seed formed with plants that germinate well into August, right? So, you know, you may think of, I implemented my program and I was clean throughout the majority of the summer and now I've got, you know, a few plants here and there that may have broken through, but they showed that those late summer plants that might be present, they can they can germinate, they can produce viable seed that's going to be part of the canopy the next year. So I think there are layers to it. You know, the other thing, and Matt was involved in this as well, is from a post-emergence perspective, we published a paper on the effects of soil moisture on the effectiveness of some of our post-emergence chemistry mm-hmm. and saw pretty conclusively that when we put post-emergence herbicides on goosegrass, in soils that are maintained uh, fairly dry, they work worse, like like a heck of a lot worse. Mm. And when we get into an environment where we have adequate soil moisture, they work as as designed on susceptible populations. And I wrote an article for the Green Section Record last year, you know, just asking the question, are some of the things in golf, at least, where we've moved to more firm and fast in terms of trying to maintain the surface as compact as we can, and as dry as we can to get the ball interactions that we want for the nature of the game, are we setting up some of our herbicides to fail based on those parameters? Because certainly the data that we have in studies would suggest that uh, we very well might be. Yeah, it is very interesting. Boy, did you bring me back up. That was a, just had a wicked flashback. That's what I studied for my PhD degree, the effect of drought stress on uh, phenoxaprop performance in crabgrass. And what we found was that you weren't getting the uh, metabolism. It wasn't converting from the ethyl ester into the form that would actually translocate and kill the plant. That lack of uh, metabolism and the lack of translocation was resulting in a kill. Now, Jim, on the other side of that, haven't you seen some plants escape pre-emergent control and actually being able to grow with clubbed roots because the soil's very wet? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that we've seen that specifically. I mean, I know going back to POA, because that's, I feel like all roads lead back there. I mean, you can sometimes see that where you can have a plant that will survive in an upper layer of the profile with a compromised root system. And then when you have some traffic, though, you tend to lose those plants. I mean, I've seen that in the field before. I just think that all of this, Frank, to me, whether it's resistance-related, POA, or goosegrass, it all gets back to a place of we're just moving towards needing more precision with what we're doing when it comes to weed control. And, you know, anyone who's ever heard me give an extension talk, I often contrast the mentality that's put behind weed control decisions with the mentality that's put behind disease control decisions. Mm -hmm. And their apples and oranges different where we're thinking through fungicide programs in terms of building mode of action diversity within and over applications in a way to kind of keep things uh, preventatively as as disease-free as we can. 
in factoring in all of the environmental variables that uh, can cause a symptom evolution uh, for a given pathogen, we don't do that by and large with weed science. No. And, and I think we're moving into a place where we're going to need to do that more with weed science moving forward as our management becomes more modern. I couldn't agree more, Jim. And what a joy. And the time goes by so quickly. I really appreciate you taking the time. And you've been so productive over these last several years. Big congratulations to you and everybody that supports you, including people at home uh, that support you to work, uh, do such great work like you're doing, Jim. As much as I hate the sports that you root for, I absolutely love following uh, your program. Thanks so much for taking the time to join me for this chat. I appreciate it, Frank. Anytime. All right. Of course, the old cliche that you have to have a competitive turf to keep your weeds at bay includes a solid nutrient management program. And when it comes to supplying those nutrients, you want simple, no-nonsense solutions. And that's where the Plant Food Company comes in. The professionals at the Plant Food Company strive to provide the latest technology at affordable prices and backs them with their commitment to servicing the industry and golf course superintendents. They have the research to back up their claims and the products for all your nutrient needs. Learn more at plantfoodco.com. Big thanks to Professor Jim Brosnan from the University of Tennessee. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at DryJack, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass. The Plant Food Company, providing nutrient management solutions to golf course superintendents to enhance playability. And our newest sponsor, Frost Incorporated, spray technology products for the discriminating turf professional. You can listen to us on Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Frankly Speaking is produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca, New York by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business manager John Kiger. Graphic design, Nicole Rossi. Theme music, Tucker Rossi. And executive producer, Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me.